Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. My name is Claire Lehman and I am Editor-in-Chief of Quillette. Quillette is where free thought lives. We are an independent, grassroots platform for heterodox ideas and fearless commentary. Our podcast is a team effort and is jointly hosted by myself and Canadian editor Jonathan Kay. You can support our podcast by visiting patreon.com forward slash Quillette and becoming a monthly patron. By becoming a monthly patron, you'll also receive our weekly newsletter. Welcome to the Quillette Podcast. I'm your host, Jonathan Kay. And my first guest for 2022 is Ross Douthat, whose name should be well known to those listeners who make a habit of reading the New York Times opinion pages. Douthat, one of the few conservatives at the Times, has been writing his column since 2009, usually on politics, public policy, and religion. But in his new memoir, titled The Deep Places, he gets much more personal, recounting his battle with Lyme disease and the chronic version of that ailment, which, his doctors believe, has afflicted him for years. The Deep Places is part diary, part medical investigation, and part Catholic religious meditation. But it's also a survey of the odd place that Lyme disease occupies in our culture. The term Lyme disease has been used commonly since the 1970s to describe the serious pain, fevers, rashes, stiffness, swelling, and even temporary paralysis that can result from deer tick-borne bacteria. And something like half a million Americans suffer from it every year. But as Douthat writes in his book, doctors still take radically different positions on whether it's really a serious chronic condition. At some points, Douthat thought that he might literally be going crazy, as even his own doctors and relatives wondered if his conditions weren't perhaps psychosomatic. In fact, it seemed like that one little deer tick bite might not only cost him his health, but also his marriage and his career. Douthat spoke to me last month from his home in Connecticut. Here's a recording of our conversation. Chronic Lyme disease occupies a kind of weird place in medical typology. On one hand, it's looked on with suspicion by the medical establishment. On the other hand, there's this large and well-established core of doctors who treat it and who take it very seriously, and who helped you in many cases. Is there any other medical condition that occupies this weird twilight state in between established medical condition and suspected pseudoscience? I don't think there's one that has precisely the chronic Lyme sort of clarity of warring camps, if you will. What's distinctive about Lyme, the chronic form, is not just that it's in this sort of medical borderland. It's that you really do have these sort of very coherent teams sort of arguing back and forth where, you know, there's literally two separate medical associations for doctors on either on either side of the debate about chronic Lyme treatment, right? And, you know, you you have a set of labs at various universities doing chronic Lyme research that doctors at other medical schools and other universities would say is pointless, right? Like that that kind of starkness I think is pretty unusual. The more usual thing is to have a sort of terrain of ambiguity around an illness, which is, you know, what you have, for instance, with chronic fatigue syndrome or fibromyalgia, where there's sort of a range of medical approaches to these conditions and a lively debate about how to treat them. I should say, I could be wrong about this. I haven't gone as deep as obviously into some other conditions as I've gone into the world of the illness that I myself had. But I do, I do think that kind of formal schism 
is kind of unique, at least for a disease that has this many cases and patients. And, you know, everybody on both sides of the schism agrees that there are lots and lots of people who get Lyme disease. It's, you know, 500,000 cases every year at this point. I don't think you set out to write a science book, but you did in the sense that you educated yourself about this bacterium that causes Lyme disease. It, you make it sound as a sort of terrifying kind of supervillain of bacteria because it does change shape. You know, at first it's a sphere and then it's a corkscrew and then it goes into dormancy and resists antibiotics and you need one substance to flush it out. And then, and then half an hour later, another one comes in to kill it. And there's this very interesting section. Uh, it's, it's after you've gone to the beach in Maine. You talked about the twilight zone of diseases, but so the twilight zone of approaches. I'm going to quote here. An empirical approach doesn't mean meeting the rigorous standard for FDA approval, but neither does it mean wandering a natural food store with a dousing rod and popping whatever supplement the metal points you toward, or keeping a dream journal and then parsing it for a subconscious code. You're clearly very self-aware about the way sometimes people come across when they're looking at their own medical anecdotes. On the other hand, this bacterium is so weird and so protean that you almost have to take an anecdotal approach because its manifestation in patients is just so idiosyncratic. Is that a unique feature of this disease? I actually think it's probably less unique than, than you might expect in cases of chronic infection. Um, and I think we, we see this a bit with COVID, actually, with, with the coronavirus, where there's sort of a core presentation of the illness, uh, obviously the presentation that's most likely to be dangerous and fatal, where, you know, it sort of takes root in your lungs. But then from very early on, you get a wide range of symptomology associated with COVID, stomach problems, the, you know, the famous loss of taste, the COVID toe that, that people get, right? These sort of very strange presentations. And my suspicion is that if having an illness like COVID arrive all at once so that, you know, millions upon millions of people get this disease in the same six month to two year span. So you have this incredibly wide range of cases of a disease nobody had ever encountered before. It sort of gives people more of a sense of the diversity of presentation, even in an illness that has core presentation. So I, my suspicion is that there's more diversity in presentation of illness than I as an average medical layman assumed before I got sick. With that being said, it does also seem based on the Lyme literature that the particulars of the Lyme bacteria are, it, that it's uniquely good in getting deep into your tissue in all kinds of places and wreaking particular kinds of havoc. And that that, that does sort of flow from some of these weird features that it has. Like I, I had one scientist, uh, this isn't in the book, but I think after I wrote it, and she's a, a researcher who, you know, went to a presentation on Lyme bacteria and said they showed her something where it was clear it actually could move faster through your tissue than through your bloodstream, which is a sort of sort of terrifying image, right? But this, it, and there is this, and again, this is, I think, part of why a lot of people are skeptical of the disease, because when you tell people about it, it does have a sort of alien science fiction-ish feel, like the, you know, the sort of the distinctive predatory quality of this mindless bacterium once it somehow gets inside your body. 
you seemed, at least by American standards, to have a kind of infinite access to doctors and to drugs. You could chase down whatever health option looked like it was promising. Is that something unusual for chronic Lyme disease sufferers? Because it strikes me that for a lot of people, they would have to stick with one regimen or no regimen at all because they don't have proper insurance. Yes. I mean, I was very fortunate to have a kind of comfortable upper middle class cushion that we could rely upon to some extent. Although part of what was crucial was that the way the disease manifested in me, it manifested in terrible migratory pain, which is is awful. I do not recommend it, but I didn't have the horrible fatigue that some people get with chronic Lyme and honestly other illnesses as well. It's why chronic fatigue syndrome gets called chronic fatigue syndrome. And except for a few cases, I didn't have this sort of terrible brain fog, which meant that because I had a job, right, that is a, you know, I'm a pundit, I can write from anywhere, I don't have to go into an office, I don't have to be presentable day to day, I could keep my job and keep working which, you know, had I not been able to do that, the costs of it might not have been sustainable, even given our various cushions and the family help from my father, especially that, that we ended up taking. I mean, the reality is that the core way that doctors treat Lyme disease long term, which is using multiple combinations of antibiotics sort of experimentally until you find the combination that works, the drugs themselves are not actually that expensive. In fact, it's probably one of the reasons why there's less research on Lyme disease than there should be, that there isn't some huge financial incentive to figuring out the perfect antibiotic combination because all of these are sort of generic antibiotics that nobody's going to get rich off. But so the drugs, the drugs themselves are not the cost. The cost is that the doctors who prescribe them and who help you through your treatment almost invariably don't, don't take insurance. And so an appointment at the very least, you're looking at multiple thousands of dollars a year if you're seeing the doctor, you know, four to six times in a year in those, in those kind of expenditures. It's an interesting case study in the challenges of different medical systems, because on the one hand, the fact that the American system relies on private insurance and so on means that, you know, if doctors don't take insurance, you're in a lot of trouble. On the other hand, from what I've heard from Lyme patients in Canada, the Canadian system is actually worse for chronic Lyme patients because since the medical consensus doesn't accept that chronic Lyme exists, you can't get it covered within the single payer system. And then there are just fewer doctors outside the system at all. So there's a lot of complexity in what this implies, I think, about medical insurance systems. The idea of slapping cash down on the table for medical treatment, it does at least give room for some kind of, uh, call it dissident medicine. And in fact, one of the doctors you went to <laughs> was in the process or had just been in the process of being sanctioned in some way by New York State medical authorities. You kind of begin to gaslight yourself because many of the people you talk to, not just doctors, but also advocates, also veer into stuff that you plainly regard as pseudoscience and, and conspiracy theories. Can you tell me a little bit of the overlap between legitimate medical science in this area and stuff that really just goes beyond the pale? Yeah, I mean, I think what you see in this area is a tendency, a sort of psychological tendency, where once you've had some kind of baseline transformative experience in which the medical establishment seems to fail 
and seems to fail in a way where they're sort of ignoring both patient experience, but also a certain amount of obvious evidence, then the temptation is to turn that into a kind of rule, right? So, you know, most people have the rule that if the medical establishment says something, it's trustworthy. You have this kind of life-altering experience, and it's easy to develop the rule that says, if the medical establishment says something, it's automatically suspect and probably false, right? So I am 100% certain that there is a certain amount of a, a striking degree of overlap between you know, the kind of doctors and non-doctors who work with diseases like chronic Lyme disease and like right now, strong vaccine skepticism, for instance, for, for, for precisely this reason. And that's, you know, I think that sets up a kind of an interesting challenge if you've, if you've had this kind of experience to figure out, well, how do you, how do you integrate this kind of experience into a worldview that sort of remains still connected to the things that the establishment gets right. But then, I mean, also I would, you know, and I talk about this a bit in the book too, there are things that I did, right, that I would have considered pseudoscience. And I think a reasonable person, even listening to me describe them, would consider pseudoscience that seemed to have a positive effect too. So there are sort of multiple zones of ambiguity and uncertainty that you end up going through. And the zone of taking lots of antibiotics for chronic Lyme is sort of one standard deviation removed from consensus. And then there's another standard deviation that I think probably contains some real things, a sort of mixture. And then there's a further standard deviation that's sort of pure pseudoscience. And the question is, you know, what is what? And that can be hard to separate, especially when you're really, really sick. If you're a regular listener to the Quillette podcast, you'll be familiar with BetterHelp, one of our original advertisers. Well, thanks to everything that's happened since early 2020 and the stresses that the pandemic has put on everyone, the online therapy services at BetterHelp are more relevant and in demand than ever. BetterHelp will help you unlock the tools you need to help with motivation, depression, anxiety, battling your temper, stress, dealing with insecurity in relationships or at work, whatever you need. Especially at a time like this, no one should be anxious about admitting that they're going through normal human struggles, because you deserve to be happy. BetterHelp is customized online therapy that offers video, phone, and even live chat sessions with your therapist. And you don't even have to see anyone on camera if you don't feel comfortable doing so. It's much more affordable than in-person therapy, and you can start communicating with your therapist in under 48 hours. Join the millions of people who are seeing what therapy is really about. And Quillette Podcast listeners get 10% off their first month by visiting betterhelp.com slash Quillette. Again, that's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot slash Quillette. Thanks to BetterHelp for their sponsorship. And now back to the Quillette Podcast. Your book is a chronicle of the disease. It's a chronicle of your understanding of the disease. But it's also a chronicle of second guessing of the people around you. You always have the suspicion that maybe they think you're malingering. There's, there's one great scene in your book. You discover all these sort of red lesions on your chest. And, and then you run down, downstairs to your wife and say, look, look, check out these red marks I have. And then your wife deflates you and says, oh, yes, I see. But are you sure those aren't your own scratch marks? 
And then you, you just end the section there, which I thought was a good literary device, because the reader is invited to think about how this affects the relationship between a husband and wife, because it's, it's not like cancer, where generally your spouse isn't saying, well, maybe you don't have cancer. Or Can you comment a little bit about how this affects personal relationships? Yeah, I mean, it places them under a sort of tremendous and unique kind of strain for basically all of the reasons that you just listed combined then with the reality that if you, you know, if you live with a chronically ill person, and in, in our case, the background was that I got sick as we were moving to this somewhat rural part of Connecticut, where we were in, in, in a kind of isolation that we had not been before in our married life. We had lived in the city, we'd had neighbors, suddenly we didn't, and I was sick. And so we're trapped together, you know, and, and she's, my wife is trapped with me. And there's a sense, you know, the literary analogy that, that actually we both reached for in thinking about this was Stephen King's The Shining, where the wife is stuck with her husband. The husband is a writer, right? He's always, he's always off writing. And she's not sure if she's trying to help him and support him or sort of protect herself and her family from him. Um, and obviously in the end of The Shining, she has to protect herself and her family from him. And that's not how our story ends because I did actually find a way to get mostly better and our marriage survived and we had another child and are very happy, right? So it's not, it doesn't, it doesn't have the Stephen King ending, but it has the Stephen King setup. And, you know, both of you, the sick person and the person living with the sick person live with that reality and are aware of that reality. And it inevitably shapes your, your interactions. And the truth is I both think that it is quite clear and certain that chronic Lyme disease exists and, I had it uh, and, you know, still have it residually and also can totally see how the arc, especially early on when I couldn't figure out a treatment that worked, right? When you're just sort of trying things in desperation, the arc of that experience, which it just doesn't instill confidence in the people around you. It just inevitably doesn't. You're like, well, honey, there's this group of outsider doctors <laughs> and they say they can cure me but we've been treating it for a year and I haven't gotten any better, but I'm sure it's real, right? Like that's, that's a hard sales pitch. At least at the beginning of the book, you're an unreliable narrator and, and you seem very cognizant of it. In fact, you list things against interest. You say things you don't have to, like you talk about how your mom was into some pretty fringe medical stuff when you were growing up, which you didn't have to include in the book, but I felt like you were leaning into the unreliable narrator posture maybe to meet readers where you expected them to be? Was that part of your strategy that you were going to embrace the reaction that maybe you expected from readers and then bring them back from there into what you felt your reality was? I, I think that was part of the strategy, yes. Um, I think, though, in also just in writing a book like this, you have a kind of choice between writing the best possible book and writing the most convincing possible book. And not that I'm saying that, you know, my book is the best <laughs> possible version, uh, but I think it is a better book for being as forthright as possible about all of the things that could make a reasonable person skeptical of my story um, and being as forthright as possible about some of the, you know, the weirder things that I tried that don't 
fit, you know, even in sort of the straightforward outsider critique of the CDC consensus on Lyme disease. So I, I feel like there's sort of a core part of the book that just makes, I think, a pretty straightforward and I hope convincing argument for why people who are skeptical of chronic Lyme disease should take it seriously and how my experience provides evidence for why it should be taken seriously. But human life is weird and complicated, right? <laughs> There's a lot of other stuff going on too, uh, family stuff, psychological stuff, spiritual stuff, right? And not everything strange that happened to me is in the book, but I felt like it would be fundamentally untrue to this kind of experience not to not to have at least some of that that context and that and that complexity and i mean i'm also trying to be generally true to you know what is it like to have a chronic illness right not just lyme disease any any illness any person who has a weird illness that medical science struggles to treat their experience is you know almost always going to be weird in some way that's overlaps with mine and is different than mine but i did feel like i was sort of speaking for a lot of people who've had these kind of experiences and trying to be honest about just how dislocating and disruptive to your sort of comfortable assumptions about the world going through something like this really is. You would go to a doctor, at one point the doctor says it explicitly, while you're being treated, an internist, I think says to your wife, yeah, maybe you should get mental health treatment for your husband. That's a really unsettling thing to happen. So that, that's pretty early on. Um, so there's sort of a phase where we haven't even yet gotten to the point where I have a number of doctors telling me you probably have Lyme disease, right? So before that point, we were just sort of in a zone of mostly total mystery, where you're going from doctor to doctor to doctor to specialist to specialist, and they're all sort of you know, shrugging and uncertain and not seeing anything on the blood tests. And you know, when you're in that zone, I mean, I would have rather he said it to me than to my wife, but you sort of appreciate the honesty, right? You want, if the doctor, you know, if the doctor thinks you should see a psychiatrist, you want to be told that. Um, and I, you know, I didn't, I went to see a couple of psychiatrists during that period. Um, you know, when, when you have, when you're sick and are totally uncertain about what's wrong with you, any kind of recommendation, any kind of quasi certainty is possibly welcome. So I wasn't, you know, I wasn't resisting the idea that I could be having a nervous breakdown or a, some kind of psychogenic illness. I was happy to explore that possibility um, because it just because it promised some kind of answer, right? It's it better better to be told you have a psychogenic illness than to be told nothing, which was sort of where a lot of medical appointments ended. And, up. and all of this did happen just as you were embarking on two radical life changes, which a new child and picking up from Washington and relocating to this big shambling rural property. You must have had friends and family members saying, wow, this is this is a big transformation. Everybody responds to big transformations in different ways. Did you have people close to you say that kind of thing? Yes, although it was more likely to be the doctors who said it. But yes, the, certainly the people close to me thought it. And I, I mean, again, I thought it myself. Like I would sort of construct narratives where I would say, okay, this is happening because my, you know, we're, we're going through this passage in life. I would say, well, once we make it to Connecticut, because I got sick in the interim between buying the house and, you know, completing the move. So I would say, all right, once we make it to Connecticut, I'll feel better. 
or once once our third child, our our son is born, I'll feel better because the transition will have happened and whatever, whatever, you know, my mind is getting up to as I turn 35 and head towards midlife, I just need to go through this transition and something will change. But then the reality is when nothing changes, right? I mean, I, I never got any change from any kind of sort of psychological maneuvers or exercises or breathing exercises or meditation. I mean, I tried a lot of things. What I did get changes from was taking antibiotics. Um, and when that happens, it creates a kind of internal evidence that is not provable, right? I can't prove to you that taking antibiotics prevented me from completely disintegrating and, you know, falling completely apart and losing my job and my marriage. But in fact, that is what happened. No control group. Yeah, you're, a, you're an N of one. There's no control group, but you have to work with what you have. And so once that happened, you know, even, even, after, I, even after that happened, you still sort of sometimes default back to psychological explanations inevitably. But the reality was, I took antibiotics, I stabilized. I went off them, I got worse. This always happened. And at a certain point, that reality just controls how you then go about trying to fully get better. First of all, I'm going to pass over the idea that 35 years old is, is middle-aged. <laughs> well, this is just what people would say. You know, people looking, they're looking for something to say, right? No, now I'm 42 and I know, I know a little more about where middle age actually starts. Not till 50. No, I know. I agree. I agree. I'm young. I'm young yet. When you take the antibiotics, you have this Herxheimer, if I'm pronouncing that correctly, which is, is kind of like this hellish state. Can you explain what a Herxheimer is? Yeah, so a Herxheimer, it's actually called a Yerish Herxheimer reaction. That's the full name. And it's named for two, I think, Austrian doctors in the 19th century who observed it in patients being treated for syphilis and other, other bacterial infections with strong doses of penicillin. And the idea is basically that when you have a very, very sick person who has lots of bacteria hanging out really happily <laughs> in his bloodstream and body, and you suddenly kill a lot of these bacteria, the body sort of freaks out and is trying to basically sort of flush its, its systems of, um, and you know, in some ways, I think probably your immune system that has been suppressed sort of suddenly becomes aware of what's going on. Anyway, there are a lot of theories about what it is, but regardless of, regardless of what causes it, you get an intensification of symptoms. Uh, and some people will, you know, when they start taking antibiotics after being sick with Lyme disease for many years, will get incredible reactions where they have, you know, they suddenly spike a fever and are, you know, bedridden for a week or something. In my case, it was sort of less alarming, but weirder. I would essentially have this desire to move and rub whatever area of my body was symptomatic. So you would take the antibiotic. And a little while later, if I was having, you know, pain or tingling in my legs or something, I would suddenly have this urge to stomp my legs and rub my legs. And, you know, there are scenes faithfully reproduced or recorded in the book where I, you know, will take an antibiotic while I'm at a car dealership and suddenly like have to have to stomp and run around out behind the garages, you know, sort of rubbing at my chest like a wolf man. And it's like the DTs for people in detox, no? It, yeah, it has some similarities to that. Yes. But it also feels to me, and again, I didn't have it in the worst possible way that some people have, but to me, it felt, it, it also felt good. 
it it like not not like pleasant but like cathartic in, cathartic and like you're flushing something like you were like there's something in your system that isn't supposed to be there and your body has suddenly realized this and is trying to do something about it um and that you know when you spend much of your time in this state of just sort of permanent wrongness where it's like something is wrong and my body doesn't know what to do about it having that kind of catharsis is welcome you talk a lot with a feeling of guilt about not being able to to spend time with your kids it's sometimes just agonizing to do basic things that, that a grandparent could do uh, and there's a scene in pittsburgh i think it was where you you had to go to the hospital because you were in medical crisis one of the odd things about that is you were driving the family car I remember I identified with this sort of thing is that if I were in your shoes, I would I would want to drive the car too because it's sort of like a gesture of control or normalcy. Were you often pushing yourself to affect a sense of normalcy as a kind of performance for your children? Yes, totally, totally and completely. Um, and that and that was sort of, you know, when I would have again at the beginning when I didn't understand what was going on and I would have these crazy episodes of pain and end up going to the hospital like my my fears were always centered around the idea that, you know, I wasn't afraid of dying. I was afraid of collapsing in front of them or abandoning them, failing them in some way. The good thing was that they were very young when this was at its worst. Um, you know, it was sort of at its worst when our oldest was between four and seven. And so there were more ways to, I think, protect them from certain kinds of knowledge of how badly off I was than there would have been had they been like the ages they are now, 10 and 8 and 5 and um, for our three oldest. But but yeah, I mean, a lot. Of, and and part of, you know, part of what you experience with something like this is also, and talk a little bit about this in the book, sort of coming to terms with the idea that in this phase of life, your job is to perform normalcy, even when you don't feel normal, that that's just sort of the obligation you have as a father and a husband, you have to work and make money, you have to like take your kids on trips, you have to do some social events so that your wife doesn't feel completely and utterly isolated. And none of these things will give you any pleasure, because normal forms of pleasure have been cut off by what your body is going through. And you just have to accept that. And I'm not going to say that like I achieved some sort of Zen state where I really accepted that. I was mostly not accepting of it. But, but that was the reality of what you have to do to get through a period like this with obviously the hope throughout that it's temporary. All of the events, or at least almost all of the events you describe, take place in the shadow of the Trump phenomenon. Like at one point, you, you sort of imagine that when your suffering ends, it will allow you to, to fulfill your pundit destiny of definitively taking on some of his misinformation. And then there's this weird interlude where you, you actually got a visit from the Secret Service in regard to Trump. Can you describe that episode? Yes. So <laughs> this is, you know, probably nine months in. We, uh, it's during the heat of the 2016 campaign. And I'm sick and we're living in this kind of isolation. And I was on Twitter and I made some reference to the ending of the, it's another Stephen King story, The Dead Zone, where basically a psychic um, has visions that this populist presidential candidate will bring, bring about nuclear Armageddon 
and he has to decide what to do about this premonition. In the end, he decides to assassinate the presidential candidate, and he fails. But in the course of the assassination, the candidate grabs a baby to defend himself. And this act ends the guy's cane, saves the world from Armageddon. And I, you know, this politician really does have sort of in his populist style resemblances to Trump. And so I made some, you know, some joke or something about like, well, maybe this is how the Trump phenomenon will end, meaning <laughs> with him holding up a baby yeah, to yeah. defend himself, not being assassinated. But of course, this was a really stupid thing to do. And because people immediately interpreted it as New York Times columnist calls for Trump's assassination. And so I did the thing where you say you take down the tweet and you say, I really didn't I'm sorry, this was misinterpreted. I really didn't mean anything by it, et cetera. I went on with my you know, not exactly pleasant life. And we were at the mall, um, I think eating at Chick-fil-A when I get this call a few hours later and, you know, say, Mr. Douth, that it's the Secret Service. Uh, we'd like to talk to you. <laughs> I said, I I'm happy to talk to you. Uh, how would we arrange that? And they said, well, we're actually at your house right now. Um, where are you? And so we went back to the house and there they were with a local policeman. Um, and they wanted to interview me about whether I was planning to assassinate Donald Trump. And, you know, in addition to being, this was sort of fundamentally comic in certain ways in hindsight, uh, but it was also, it, it was this striking thing because of course they didn't just have to interview me, they had to interview my wife sort of separately from me in case I was storing ammunition in the basement, right? Or, you know, sort of, and, and in case she was being held hostage. And so they asked her, you know, the fundamental question, right? Like, do you consider your husband stable and trustworthy? <laughs> um, and I, she, I, she said, yes, at least I hope she said yes, they didn't, they didn't take me into custody. So I assume she did. But it was just this striking moment in our very strange situation, because I really was kind of this crazy hermit at that moment in my life. You're in the throes of medical agony and you're on Twitter. Doesn't Twitter make every agony worse? There are ways in which social media generally totally makes agony worse because you are sort of confronted with everybody else's sort of performative and curated self. self. You know, anytime someone would post a happy vacation photo, it would make me envious and, and depressed, right? At the same time, you know, the sort of the little dopamine hits that Twitter gives you and the arguments that you have on there were also useful distractions, right? That like there, there, there were ways in which I probably, I didn't take any particularly effective painkiller, but I probably did self-medicate with social media a little bit um, for good or ill. And, you know, and I, I think that when I look back on that period, you know, I have, I think a reputation as a very calm and cautious sort of writer, maybe to a fault. It's one of the things people criticize me from both sides for. I think during that period, there was a little more of an edge to my writing, again, for better or worse. It was a little, a little shriller than, you know, the, and, and that was probably true of my Twitter engagement too, um, inevitably reflecting, you know, the, the place well, where I was. Let me ask you a little bit about that interplay between your personal life and your, your public face, uh, because in the world of punditry, there's often this conceit of, of perfect detachment, whereby the pundit's power of logic is untethered to the grubby world of, of the flesh. But in the book, you sort of break down that, that wall. Uh, there's one point, I think, where you were at your low point. You, you mentioned that you were still writing film reviews, but you warn 
readers, ah, I wouldn't put too much stock in any of my film reviews from that period. Did you worry that people reading this book would begin to doubt this necessary veneer of detachment, this august detachment that especially an esteemed New York Times columnist has to, to maintain to some degree? Was that something you thought about? Yep. Yep. I mean, I, I think that the most skeptical reader of this book would use it, could use it as a reason to regard a lot of my analysis more skeptically. It's like, you know, noted crank who uses pseudoscientific medical treatments claims, <laughs> you know, this or that. Well, he's obviously, you know, he's I, obviously... I didn't just mean that part. I just meant the fact that you, you talk candidly about how what's going on in your personal life affects the kind of stuff, or at least the tone of what you're writing in your professional journalism. Yes, but I think everybody knows that to some extent, right? I mean, this is the age of the internet. Like in general, I do believe in trying to maintain separation between analysis and experience. Uh, and that is sort of important to how I think about my job at the times. So I do sort of regard to the extent that I can sort of recall myself taking on a sort of extra edge of hysteria in some controversies, probably because in part because of what I was going for. I think that's regrettable. Although again, I think there are people who probably prefer <laughs> the more hysterical style of punditry. Who, <laughs> But either way, the truth is that there are also just a lot of different ways to write. And when you're a pundit, it's a dream job, right? It's an incredible thing to be able to opine on any subject under the sun and have this kind of quasi-captive audience. But it's also constraining in other ways. And there are kinds of writing, personal writing, more literary writing that just don't really fit into, or at least in my, my own experience, don't fit into the pundit's work. And so there are sort of some costs to the pundit persona to conducting an act of exposure like this book, but there are also compensations, namely that I got to write a book like this that has a more, you know, it's, it's a story, it's storytelling, it's narrative, and I enjoyed that, and enjoyment is part of why you write too. One of the other tensions is that your book, which questions the mainstream medical approach in regard to chronic Lyme disease, comes out at a moment when it's uniquely urgent to convince tens of millions of Americans at least that mainstream medical science should be believed and that your brother-in-law's story about adverse reactions to a vaccine, that kind of N equals one anecdotal data should be rigorously excluded from your consideration. And is that something you or maybe your publisher had to wrestle with, that, that tension? To some extent, but I, I think that I think the reason that that localized experience is so powerful is precisely because it's so localized and people experience things interpersonally in such a profound way. So what, what do you mean by localized? I mean that normal, normal people, especially people who do not spend their time reading studies from the New England Journal of Medicine for fun, <laughs> right? Normal people inevitably base some of their decision making on this kind of, you know, I'm nervous about doing this because my cousin did it and had an adverse reaction, right? That I, I think that's sort of an inescapable part of human nature. And so I'm doubtful that reading a book by a New York Times columnist is going to be the decisive thing that turns someone into you know an anti-vaxxer or something like that. At least that's what I that's what I tell myself. But the end but the other thing I tell myself is that, and that 
you know, I say in the book itself is that I don't know for sure that this would help, but I think it would be helpful for the medical system to have more of a sense itself of why people end up skeptical of it. And I think there's this sense among doctors and medical authorities that you have to cloak yourself in certainty at all times. You know, the instant you let that cloak drop even an inch, you know, there'll be a wave of pseudoscience ru running in to fill the void. And the problem with that is a problem we've seen throughout the COVID era where, you know, when you have a novel pathogen and a new pandemic, you can't be certain. Official medicine, there's a lot it doesn't know. And so when it tries to be constantly authoritative, it ends up undercutting itself for the moments as with vaccination where it really needs to be authoritative. Um, so I, I like to think that a slightly humbler medical establishment that was more willing to admit uncertainty would actually have more success sort of in the places where it is and should be most certain. But maybe that's, that might be wishful thinking, but that's, that's at least a potential read on where this kind of story fits into the, the place we're in right now. You have this great quote from Alphonse Daudet, pain is always new to the sufferer, but loses its originality for those around him. It made me think about how if, if a person is in a point of explicit crisis, like there's a car crash or they have a heart attack, or you talk about on a larger scale, there's a hurricane or an earthquake, there's this moment when people will, will rally, sometimes heroically, to help perfect strangers. But the steady drip, drip, drip of agony and discomfort that never changes and doesn't promise any resolution, and therefore it doesn't promise any feeling of closure for third parties, that people are less likely to act. Well, or they just, or, or they just don't reasonably don't know how, how to act. Did that disappoint you? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it's all, it's very understandable. Well, you say it now, it's very understandable. Would the Ross Douthat of four or five years ago regard it as very understandable? Less so, but the Ross Douthat of four or five years ago was, you know, sick and desperate and not inclined to charity. And one of the graces of getting getting better is that you sort of, I mean, you know, independent of friends, like four or five years ago, I was filled with like a murderous rage <laughs> at the medical establishment. And I hope, I hope you think that this book is not written in a spirit of murderous rage <laughs> at, the, at the medical establishment, right? So that's, I mean, that's, I, I, I didn't have any, I didn't have rage at my friends, but you do, you know, you move, you move to the country, you get sick and yeah, you feel, you feel alone, you feel isolated and you, you feel like it would be better if more people were sort of frequently checking in on you who are sort of aware of your situation. And yet when they do check in, but when they do check in, it's not like you flee their company, you run away. Right. It's not like you're sort of, Oh, I'm happy and grateful. No, it's, it's hard. Yeah. It's hard when they check in. And that's, and that's the, the challenge, right? Is that to help a person who's in this situation is to deliver something to them, a kind of, temporary companionship that they may not be able to express gratitude for in the moment. Or they don't even know they want it yep. until you leave. Because yep. you describe a scene where an old college friend drops by, you're kind of pissed off about it. But then when they're gone, you kind of miss them. Yes. Well, you're sort of, you're sort of, you don't know how to process 
having someone there, right? And you don't know exactly, you know, you sort of feel like, oh, I'm supposed to be hospitable, but I can't be hospitable. It's awful and so on. And yeah, it's only afterward that you're like, oh, it was, you know, this is an act of care and solidarity that you really appreciate. But it's hard to experience that appreciation, let alone express it in in the moment itself. And that's, I think that's the hardest thing for people trying to help someone in this situation is just that, that like their form, the form of help you can give, the only form for most people, because most people aren't going to be able to like help you figure out your medical condition is a kind of presence and a kind of presence that often sort of siphons off a little bit of toxic energy that otherwise the sick person would direct towards their wife, right? Towards the person who's with them. Or the president of the United States. Well, or the president of the United States, right. Either the person who's with them all the time or the person who's in their mind all the time when they're on Twitter. Um, But that's, you know, that's a hard thing to do to just sort of be a sounding board for a sick person's unhappiness for an hour every few weeks. But to the extent that like I'm giving any kind of advice to people who might have a friend or family member in this situation, I guess it is something like that, that being available, available for contact, even if you don't feel in the moment like you're delivering that much to someone is, is really important. And it made me rethink some of my own experiences. I had a very depressed friend in his 20s who used to call me and, you know, I had no idea what to say to him. And we would be on the phone sort of in silence for long periods of time. And I always felt like, what the hell am I doing? I'm not offering him anything. This is pathetic. But maybe I was offering him something that he couldn't express why he needed at the time, but was actually important. And I think that's worth, it's worth keeping in mind, I think. I'll end with a question about religion. You're practicing Catholic, and I won't try and summarize your your description of how Christianity interfaced with your medical condition because it's nuanced and it's complicated, but you did have one line. You were talking about the theology of suffering, theodicy, quote, I feared what it implied. What did you mean by that? I meant that there's this idea that the core question facing, let's say, a Christian confronting a world filled with suffering. Why do bad things happen to good people? But the reality is from the Christian perspective, and not just the Christian perspective, but it's sort of sharpened by, you know, the crucifixion, right? From the Christian perspective, you know, the entire history of Christianity is a history of saints and holy people who are supposedly especially beloved by God, or maybe not especially beloved, but close to God in some way, you know, getting persecuted, martyred, afflicted by demons, plagues, you know, I mean, just, just a long litany of, of, um, of suffering. And so the Christian perspective on the world basically has to say that, you know, bad things, bad things happen to good people in part because that plays some role in their perfection, right? That like that, that whatever the world might have been, you know, without the fall um, in the world we have now, suffering is connected to perfection and, and salvation. And if that's the case, then the question isn't why do bad things happen to good people? It's why do good things happen to good people, right? And so if you're suffering, 
you know, you can't feel some sort of easy sense of relaxation, like, well, God loves me. And so everything's going to get better. I mean, yeah, eventually everything's going to get better, but that eventually might be, you know, in the next life, right? So if you're sort of, and, and I, and I want to stress that like in general, as a psychological thing, religious faith is an incredibly potent force for helping you get through an experience like this because it does help you feel that this is happening for a reason it isn't just random you are part of a story there's something being asked of you that you can sort of bear up and live with and get through so in that sense i I don't want to imply that like it was just some sort of source of fear and depression but it wasn't you know the implications of that kind of theology of suffering are that you shouldn't necessarily expect that you'll get better on any simple timetable. And if you do get better in the next decade of your life, a loving God might have, you know, some even more challenging experience prepared for you. So that's what I was getting at there. Ross Douthat's new book is called The Deep Places, A Memoir of Illness and Discovery. Thanks for being on the Quillette podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It was a pleasure. If you would like to support Quillette, please consider becoming a patron. Head to our Patreon page. That's patreon.com forward slash Quillette. If you haven't already, follow us on social media. We're on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Do you like what you're hearing? Perhaps you would like to read more about the issues in today's discussion. Head to Quillette.com where you will find more content.